Good morning, family. Well, please turn with me again in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And our text this morning is verses uh, 10 through 16, which you've already had read in your hearing. So rather than reading that again for the sake of time, we'll jump right in. Well, I, I introduced last week's sermon with a statement that I believe reflects what most of us already fully know, and that is that relationships are hard. And where there are relationships, there will also always be disappointments and hopefully, by God's grace, reconciliation. A part of the process that is necessary for this to happen, reconciliation, is correction. Sometimes correction of our behavior or speech comes from the Lord himself through his word, through our consciences, through the work of the Holy Spirit. And we are confronted directly by what we already know. But at other other times, we need others to help us to see ourselves better and give insight to how we need to change. While this is often, if not always, painful, it is necessary for us to really change. Scripture says that how we receive correction is one way that the disposition of our hearts are revealed. For instance, in Proverbs chapter 9, verses 8 through 9, do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. So what we see from that passage is is how we receive correction is a significant marker as to our own Christian maturity. And whether we are currently in a disposition of being wise or responding as fools. So you know that question is coming later. How do you respond to correction? We'll come back. We have seen that Paul wrote the church uh, to the church at Corinth a letter due to their failures toward him when a man who was present had made accusations against him in that meeting. He was deeply concerned about their response because their failure could indicate a serious problem in regards to their future walk with Jesus. In our text this week, Paul is going back to address two kinds of sorrow, which is really an expansion, kind of a a footnote to this whole section. But he's going to address two kinds of sorrow in response to faithful correction for unfaithful behavior. One kind of sorrow is a great display of the grace of God. And the other is a considerable roadblock to the possibility of ongoing transformation. One is a saving sorrow. The other is a condemning sorrow. So first of all, let's look at the two kinds of sorrow defined here. Verse 10, very simply, godly grief and worldly grief. He says, for godly grief in one category, let's put godly grief over here, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Back in verse 9, Paul wrote, as we saw last week, that in response to the severe letter he had sent them, they were grieved into repenting, which had made way for the uh, relational reconciliation, uh, to make way for the reconciliation with him. That's, That's a mouthful. A relational reconciliation with him despite their wrongdoing. He now terms that grief, that repenting, that kind of grief or sorrow as godly sorrow. Now, the term here used for sorrow or grief in this section indicates we can call it a kind of a psychological 
or conscience or something internal. It's not a physical pain, but it's a kind of a psychological, mental difficulty. And it is produced by the work of the Holy Spirit. This he talks about as a way of this word sorrow means pain or heaviness or affliction. So, you know, and I know what it is to be sorrowful. It is to carry pain, heaviness, affliction internally or mentally. It is by nature uncomfortable to be told that we are wrong about something we've said or done or thought is often not an easy thing to receive. We want to be right, don't we? Especially when we're trying to do the right thing, we want to be right. So that's the term sorrow or grief. The term godly grief or godly sorrow, the term godly means at least a couple of things. First, it likely relates to the inward sorrow that is a product, a work of the Holy Spirit himself. It is a light receiving and life producing sorrow. Yes, it hurts, but it hurts in a good way, in a productive way. So that's the first thing godly probably means. Second, godly probably means it has a Godward orientation. It realizes that this sorrow is from God and that the response should be toward God, not just the people that have been wronged in some way. So this godly grief in the Corinthians comes from God, is directed ultimately back toward him. He says when this is true, it produces something by way of fruit, and that is repentance, or most literally, a change of mind. It's a sorrow that changes the thinking, and thus it changes behavior. This is more than a feeling bad about something, feeling guilty, even feeling sorry for hurting someone or just getting caught. By the way, all of which can be included in godly sorrow, but those by themselves are not godly sorrow. Because this sorrow is from and toward God, there is a real change in the believer that follows. He then says that the change of mind leads to salvation without regret. We often think of salvation in the terms that we use, uh, particularly the term justification, being declared righteous. I am saved. By grace, you have been saved. We think of being declared righteous by the righteousness of Jesus, what we call justification. And that's one, one way that this term is used in the Bible. Or sometimes we relate it to being saved from final judgment, leads to salvation, a rescue from the final judgment and the outpouring of God's wrath. That's also true. The scripture uses it that way. But several years ago, I began to, in my Bible reading, look at the larger biblical context. And while it includes those two things, it also includes the idea of rescue. As a matter of fact, when I'm reading the Bible, I'm paraphrasing it in my mind or, or translating it or whatever, because salvation is one of those churchy uh, terms that kind of, you know, everybody uses. I like the word rescue. You will rescue me, not just save, but rescue me from X, Y, Z. So this idea of rescue, yes, rescue from the wrath of God. Yes, rescue from the coming judgment. Yes, rescue from being condemned, but also rescue from the kinds of thinking words and behavior that are contrary to God and his life giving way or, or his life giving way. So now we are progressively being rescued from the kind of behaviors that destroys us and other people and diminishes the glory of God. So I think Paul has this meaning primarily in mind, this rescue from a life of sin, a rescue from a life of depravity. I think Paul has this meaning primarily in mind, no, though not excluding the others. 
their change of mind in response to his correction for what they had done was producing a rescue from their destructive ways. In this case, that which destroys relationships within the body of Christ. This is a sorrow, he says, that is without regret in the sense that it doesn't live with past failures, just stewing in them, constantly living in a condemned condition, but living in the life-giving freedom of the gospel, which progressively rescues us from our old ways. It is also, he says, without regret, because it won't be judged in the end as phony. When people will say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things? And he will say, depart from me, I never knew you you worker of iniquity. That will be a day with great regret for many. So Paul also writes about worldly grief by way of contrast. So that's that's godly grief that we've seen that is real, internal, psychological, mental weightiness produced by the Holy Spirit that knows it's from God. It, it has repentance toward God. It has a change of mind. It, it is a kind of sorrow that begins to rescue us from the behavior, not just sorrow for being caught, sorrow for doing the wrong thing, but actually rescue from that, not living in regret, rescued from cons- uh, destructive ways. He now compares that with a second kind of sorrow. He writes about this worldly grief by way of contrast. This is a sorrow that is just as real, just as experienced, and just as felt. It makes people feel bad. It makes us feel bad. We can say as Christians, as we go through this, we're going to see that there there are examples where we have had godly sorrow that have begun to transform us. But I and you probably have also had worldly sorrow for getting caught, being busted, being confronted, whatever it may be. And a Christian can have both of those kinds of sorrows. But the point here is that this sorrow is really felt and experienced. It too carries the inward heaviness for knowing that we have done something wrong. But it is merely what Paul terms as worldly. That is, it isn't oriented toward God in response. Yes, we may be, uh, feel bad for the mess that we've made. Yes, we acknowledge we have hurt someone or done something really out of line. We may even say we are sorry, but it's not with a Godward orientation. This kind of grief, Paul says, doesn't lead to salvation, rescue from behavior. He he says it actually leads to death. It seems to me the primary thing he is referring to is a lack of change, not just death in the end, but a death life living in this world, just continuing to destroy. It's this kind of death that is a lack of change. This kind of grief, Paul says, is a lack of change leading to death. And what is assumed is that it doesn't lead to a change of mind. It doesn't rescue us from that which we know is wrong. It continues living in the wrong with the regret, sorrow, and accumulated grief, It is miserable, but it's not transformative. So merely being sorry for our failures, whether we come to that knowledge by our own conscience or the correction of another person, is never enough. Just being sorry, feeling grief. The kind of sorrow we will have will either produce repentance, rescue, and a Godward life, and all that that means, or it will produce death. I've sometimes heard it said, well, you know, at least I feel bad about this, which must be a good sign. 
And Paul's answer is, not necessarily. So what I'd like to do here is to take an aside from Paul's aside. And here for a few minutes, get behind the two kinds of sorrows that we see here and point out three things that I believe are essential in receiving correction in such a way that brings godly sorrow and not a worldly sorrow. Because I think if any of these three things are missing, it can actually undermine the Christian's real intention to have a godly sorrow. And there are three things that I draw out from my own experience and my pastoral work. So I want you to think about this in the illustration of three legs of a chair, a three-legged chair. And that chair, the top of, the stool, of that stool, of that, we'll call it a stool, the top of the stool, this chair, is a place where correction or uh, your own conscience or your awareness of your failures needs to be sat on this chair, or let's say, by way of correction, somebody comes and says, I need to sit something on the chair of your mind of your soul about something that I think maybe you're wrong about or that you've done wrong or something that you said was sinful or, or whatever it may be. I want you to think about that stool, the top of it, the place where that's where your conscience or your accusations or corrections sit. And I think these are, are three legs that we need. Without it, we will collapse. We will collapse under the weight of correction if we don't have these three legs in place. And if we know our inner stool can't receive correction, like if every time somebody corrects us, our, our stool collapses, so to speak, we feel bad, but it doesn't lead to change. We will do a couple of things. And this is a self-defense mechanism because we get tired and burdened and worn out with our stool always collapsing. One way to, to respond to a person coming in even very delicately and very kindly and very sweetly to giving us a point of correction and sitting it on our stool by speaking with us. One way to become self-defensive is anger uh, or to one, one response is anger and self-defense. We will then begin to see the other person as an enemy, someone who crushes us. And it's true. They do crush us even by a mild correction. Sweetheart, I thought you said you were going to do this for me today. Why do you always got to be on my case? Why is this? You see, that's the conscience immediately being accused because of something that's missing in there. And, and they, they would be the first one to admit to say, look, I didn't get it done. I said I was going to do it. I didn't get it done. And I'm sure you all have your own examples. But it, it's anger and self-defense because as soon as it sat on the top of the stool, it collapses. We will see the other person as an enemy, someone who crushes us. And really, it's true. They are responsible for crushing us in one sense. No matter how delicately they try to set the burden down, we will see them as a problem and not our own sin. This often leads to our being unteachable, shaken by our own insecurity. Really, you're going to complain about how, what kind of dad or what kind of mom or what kind of worker or what kind of whatever I am Again, like I don't hear enough of this. And then what happens is the self-defense goes up and we become unteachable. We often then will distance people from really knowing us. We will start trying to keep up appearances or we may just refuse to let people in at all. So what are the three legs that I'm saying are necessary for the stool of our hearts to bear up under even the most gentle or the strongest criticism for whatever we are um, what we're trying to attempt. 
So there's three things. First of all, an understanding of our common condition. You got, you, this has got to be one of those legs of the stool. And this is a, is a principle or it's a, a leg that cultivates humility. And the scriptures are quite clear about this. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all have sinned to such a degree that you look at the cross of Jesus and say, let me see, how bad are you, brother? How bad are you, sister? How bad am I? What does my sin deserve? And you look at the cross and the wrath of God being poured out on the Son of God. It's like, hey, just so everybody knows, that's how bad I am. Not just in theory, but in actual life. Like if my sins were judged before God as they deserve, I would get an eternity of wrath as the Son of God received on the cross. And so it's an acceptance of that. Not, not a passive acceptance, but an active acceptance. The fact is, I am imperfect. The fact is, I have areas of weakness and remaining sin. And there are those sins that so easily ensnare me. And there's those sins that so easily ensnare you. And the sins that so easily ensnare... And they're different for different people. It's a recognition that grace doesn't erase the reality of our remaining sin. Grace sheds light on us and gives us the power to begin to work on them. In other words, we are all a work in progress. We are in this together. So when somebody criticizes me, it's like, well, if, you, if there, there's so much you don't know about me, whatever you're correcting me about, there's probably a hundred times worse that. By this, we realize there's no need to keep up appearances. Stephen, you're a sinner. Jonathan Edwards has a really interesting thing. He says, I think it's in Religious Affections, where he says, you know, everybody in his church agreed to the doctrine of original sin and total depravity until they were confronted on a sin. <laughs> Let me say that again. Everybody believes in the doctrine of original sin and total depravity, like I'm a sinner through and through, until someone says, hey, I think you may have sinned in this. What? And it's more likely we're blind to it than we're knowledgeable about it. This is why, and he's talking about the religious infections include humility for ability to be confronted with our sins. This is why we needed God to come in human flesh to die on the cross for us, because we are really that bad. This understanding cultivates humility, not self-loathing, not, not you know, self um, a self-loathing that, that hates ourselves and wants to hurt ourselves, but it's just a recognition like I am, I'm way off here, but I'm in this together with everybody. We're all way off. This understanding then cultivates humility. If we aren't humble, when somebody comes to us and says, hey, I think you did this wrong, or here's something you might think about, or whatever it may be. If we aren't humble, then we will live in pride and either try to prove ourselves to not be wrong, or we'll begin to hide our, our struggles. The second thing is this, an understanding of God's love for us in Jesus. So there's the first leg. You got to have that, but you got to have these other two legs. The second leg is an understanding of God's love for us in Jesus. This has to do with our identity. The scriptures are likewise as clear about this. While we were still sinners, you know, there, there was a time that all of our stools only had one leg. <laughs> Or some of them didn't have any because we just we didn't even recognize or acknowledge that we are sinners. But now we're saying 
We recognize while we were still sinners, out of an eternal and an enduring love, the Father set his heart on us. He forgave us. He gives us Jesus' righteousness so that there is now no condemnation for us. He has promised never to leave us nor forsake us. His discipline of us is always, always in love, even when that discipline comes from another person. And while the dis discipline is not pleasant for the moment, Hebrews tells us, he intends for it to work in us so we may partake of his holiness. Whatever someone says and however they say it, if we derive our ultimate identity not in our performance or their identifying of us or judging of us, but if we trust in his love, then we will not be easily shaken. That's the second leg of the stool. Understanding of our common condition, breeding humility, and understanding of God's love for us in Jesus, our identity and security in him. And then the third leg of the stool is a love for the good, true, and beautiful. Like, do we really love the good, the true, and the beautiful? This is our goal. What are we trying to accomplish? Because we can be humble about our condition. We can be secure in our identity. But it's this third point. It's like, what am, I, what am I moving toward? Where am I trying to get to? What am I trying to accomplish? Do I just want to be a forgiven sinner? Or do I want to be a forgiven sinner who is transformed into the likeness of Jesus? That's this third point. It is a love for what is good across the spectrum, what is true, and what is beautiful. One of the evidences of the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in us is a love for what God loves. We readjust our desires for how we live toward those things that reflect the glory of God and his character. Our goal changes from being merely thought of a certain way. I want to be a good dad. You want to be a good mom. You want to be a good communicator. You want to be a good student. You want to be a good work person. You want to be a good neighbor. But the, the goal changes from wanting to be thought of as that merely and actually wanting to be that. Actually becoming more of what we want to be. Well, what is that going to take? It's going to take other people to help us if that is our goal, to see our blind spots, to understand our shadows, to understand the dragons that remain in us because we can't see them all. And if that's my goal, the person who's helping me toward that goal is not my enemy. They're my friend. Correction can then create inner gratitude when we realize from that person the areas in which we are not aligned to the ways that we deeply say we want to be. We can thank then those who help us and correct us rather than becoming defensive or downcast. Well, more can be said about all three of these legs, but remove one or more of them and correction will feel burdensome to us rather than life-giving. When these three are in place, they are sufficient over time to produce, through the correction, godly sorrow leading to repentance, leading to rescue from what is wrong in us. It is, by the way, again, still painful. But it is a pain that, like a medical surgery or exercise, brings about something good in us. And we recognize the outcome is worth the pain. So here it comes. How do you, and I'm asking myself this as well, how do you receive correction from others? 
setting aside for now the reality that some people just don't do it very well. Like, grant that, okay? Some people are just terrible at giving correction. All right, so setting that aside. Or setting aside the reality, some people, sometimes people are just wrong. I'm wrong. You're wrong in our perception of the situation. So setting aside the wrongness, setting aside the not doing it very well, what is our general disposition in receiving correction? Are we self-defensive because we lack humility? Are we insecure because we don't trust and rest in our identity? Are we upset because we lack love for what is truly good rather than our reputation for being that? Or do we receive correction with gratitude and security, ready to seek the spirit of God to help us in those areas where we know we can grow? Which brings us to verse 11, the fruit of godly sorrow. Now, I could spend the next 15 minutes exegeting all of these words, but I'm not going to do that. What he does here is he lines up eight things that kind of made a mosaic of what this godly sorrow produced in them. And some of them are overlapping. Some of them are somewhat synonymous. Some of them have some unique fixture, uh, um, features to them. And it's worth a word study just to go through, but I'm not going to do that for sake of time. But just notice what they are. And I've got them bolded here for you. This is what the godly sorrow produced. Earnestness, eagerness to clear themselves, indignation, fear, longing, zeal, and punishment. When they heard what they were doing wrong, at least in this case, it generated godly sorrow. The Holy Spirit generated in them these specific things. Earnestness. They, they, they were they needed to get business done. This is something they got to take care of. They need to focus on the matter. This is something that has to be resolved. And eagerness to clear themselves. Essentially, what is it I'm doing wrong? Help me to understand so I can earnestly start doing the right thing and be cleared from the wrongdoing I've been doing. Indignation. They got mad, but they didn't get mad at the person. There was irritation and vex vexation but not against Paul, but against themselves for what they had allowed to happen. Against themselves for allowing Paul to be slandered and not standing against the man who opposed him in the, in the meeting. An indignation, a zeal that, that urged them on. It was an emotional, emotive response, not against the person who was correcting them, but against what was in them that was not true, good, and beautiful. Then there was fear which could mean fear of God. It could mean reverence. It could be, again, I think it has this idea of doing all of this in, 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 the, um, in the space of the presence of God. There's longing, which means earnest desire. There's this zeal and excitement of mind, ardor, fervor, or of spirit. These aren't people who are hearing correction and shutting down and crossing the, their arms. Not now. <laughs> and then we bring punishment. What does this mean? Punishment, it could be bringing church discipline to the man who had done the wrong. That, they, that the one who was at the, the heart of the problem here, they were going to deal with. And he deals with that earlier in the book. And then finally, proving of innocence. This doesn't mean they were standing up defending themselves, saying we were innocent of the matter. The idea here is to now stand, having had that put behind me, and now be innocent any longer of the transgressions that are back there. So that's kind of an amalgam of words. He says, godly sorrow, because these folks have been well taught 
that they were sinners, their identity was in Christ, and they had had birthed in them a love for the good, true, and beautiful. I mean, they blew it badly, but when they were reminded those, those things stood strong, it generated godly sorrow, which did all of these things in them. In other words, Paul is saying for these folks, there's no half measures. And what this communicates about them is that there is a sincerity of intention at that moment. They know full well they will sin again. Right? You could read this and say, okay, these folks must never have sinned again. Oh, yeah, there's still stuff that, that's not even sorted. There's still sin that's in the church that he's not yet dealt with, that he's going to deal with later in the letter. But in regards to this matter, their response was a sincerity of intention, not a promise of sinlessness. They will sin again. They will fail again. They will hurt others again in the future. But this doesn't keep them from being earnest in their determination to honor God in the future. And this is one of the things that happens over the years of the Christian life. As you sin, as you sin, as you sin. And finally, you're like, I'm just tired of making promises. I'm just tired of trying to get it going again. I'm, try, I'm tired of writing in my journal. I'm tired of saying to the person, I'm fully intended endeavor to do this again. Makes us all feel like a bunch of liars. But this is what it does. It, it, it recharges the intentionality, which gets worn out. Now, here's some, some of your old school, um, maybe new school, video game players will recognize this, that there's the power bar on your character in certain older games. I don't know if they exist in newer games. I suppose they do. But there's the power bar. It shows you your energy level. And while they're, you're fighting at maximum power and you're ready to go and, you know, you can overcome. And suddenly you get, you know, hit by missiles or the Kung Fu Master or whoever. And it begins, or, you know, gets, goes from green into yellow and then into red. And you're going to die any minute. But then, you know, you come upon a meta pack or something and you take that and it's like, it powers up, you know. That's what renewal of repentance looks like. It's not from here out, I'm going to be 100% and I'm going to stand against every sin and I'm going to overcome everything and I'm promising you I will never fail again. I'm not promising that, but I am promising at this moment I have full intention to fight this with everything that I have. And as I continue forward, I will get hit by missiles and kung fu masters and dragons and all of the creatures of the night and I will grow weak and I will probably sin again but grace and repentance and godly sorrow kicks up that power bar again and says in, this, in, in, in the uh, words of Psalm 119, you know, I have determined in my heart that I will not sin against you. Golly, he must have been either a perfectionist or just totally oblivious to what he was even talking about. No, that's the intention. That's, that's the recharged intention of repentance and renewal. And Paul says some interesting things about it because we know these Corinthians are going to sin again. We know that they've got issues they have in their life not yet dealt with. But let me come back to that in a minute. It's actually into the next point. Paul takes that renewed power up experience and says some things about what that does for him and for his companions, which is quite remarkable. We would think he might say, well, <laughs> we'll see, pal. Well, you say that now, but I'm uncertain about your sincerity. He doesn't say that. We'll see what he says in a minute. So my application at this point is how do we approach our, or this part of the text is how do we approach our failures once we have come to know about them? Do we excuse them by, well, it's just my personality. It's just the way I've always been. Do we excuse it by our history? Do we excuse it by our circumstances? 
Or given the three legs that hold up the stool, does it work in us a greater and deeper work that doesn't make excuses? Yes, we will fall again. And for that, we will continue to look to the cross and forgiveness. We will continue to renew our faith. So we keep fighting against the darkness, even the darkness that is in our own hearts. We resolve afresh with the hope of God being for us as we exercise a long obedience in the same direction. Now, interestingly here in verse 12, Paul gives the purpose for the correction. So what was this all about? Why was he even doing this? Verse 12, although I wrote to you, is not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, that man probably in the meeting, nor for the sake of the one who has suffered the wrong himself, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. So this is, this is a, a, um, a rhetorical idiom that is, is overstating the fact to make a point, basically. What he's not saying is like, I don't care anything for this man. I didn't do any of this for the sake of this man. I don't care. He can go to hell. He's not doing that. He's also not saying, you know, my reputation doesn't matter and I don't have anything to say in response. And it's really not for my sake. It's just really, he's not saying that, but he's saying that to show that the third thing that he says that it is because he does care that this man doesn't go to hell and he does care for his own reputation. He spends half the letter defending it. But he says, ultimately, by this this rhetorical idiom, what matters most in this situation is you guys as a church. In other words, the community is more important here than the individual. And that's that's very hard for us to think of in Western democratic egalitarian terms, that there is this, the community is what matters most, not to the the, the, the detriment or the insignificance of the individual, but the individual's good plays into the common good. And so for his reputation, the salvation of this man ultimately is for the good of the community. But he says, I'm doing this for your earnestness for, now we, here we want to spiritualize and say for God, right? Your earnestness for God would be revealed. No, he said, your earnestness for us would be revealed in the sight of God. In other words, Paul recognizes that the fallout, the fallout from this fallout is more than a personal issue between two people, but affects the whole church community. All right, lastly, we're almost there. I know this is a lot. So very quickly, three things happen as a result of this godly sorrow that Paul's been analyzing, dissecting, describing in this section. Three things happen. First of all, their response, they're still in sin. There's still things they need to deal with. There's still things that Paul has to fix. Uh, But their initial response to this particular situation, first of all, gave comfort to God's servants. Therefore, because of your repentance, your godly sorrow, your earnestness, your zeal, your clearing of yourself, therefore we are comforted. This goes back to chapter one, the God of all comforts. There's a lot of that in this letter. We are comforted because of all this, because of your, your response, because of how you're doing. We are comforted, and besides our own comfort, we rejoice to st- still, uh, still more at the joy of Titus. So Titus comes back and Titus is happy. And Paul's like, well, not only are we comforted, but we're comforted by the joy of Titus. And, you know, they're they're having a big joy party. They're just having a good, woo, did you hear about the Corinthians? You know, they're still back there, kind of a mess. 
But we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. He came back to confront them to see how they responded to the letter. And he was refreshed. He came back and, and rather than exhausted from a long journey, he comes back to Paul and it light, uh, uh, the countenance of his face is lifted up. And he's like, I'm so happy and joyful for how the Corinthians are responding to this terrible thing they did to you, Paul. And Paul's like, man, I'm so comforted by that. That's the power of repentance. That's the blessing repentance in our lives brings other people. And joy. The second thing he mentions here is proof of Paul's boasting. Paul's been behind the scenes going, you just wait until you see the Corinthian church. (laughs) And we've read about the Corinthian church. You know, we could say that about Philippi or Ephesus or somewhere like that. But here's this prodigal church. What's Paul been saying? He's been boasting. He's been bragging about them. Bragging on the prodigal. You just wait. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, Titus, he's like, look, Titus, let me tell you about the Corinthian church. I'm so proud of them. And they are so amazing. And they are so, I'm sure Titus is like, "Uh, did you read your first letter to them? (laughs) This is okay. But he's boasting in hope. He says, whatever boasts I made about him to you, I was not put to shame. He comes back and says, you're right, Paul. You're right. I took correction to them and they received it and they began to godly sorrow, begin to produce fruit in their lives. But just as everything we said to you was true. So also our boasting before Titus has proved true. Titus came back and he said, you're right. The spirit of God is there. That that severe letter you gave and me showing up on the scene and coming in. They weren't mad at me. They weren't mad at you. They weren't self-defensive. They humbled themselves and repented. Paul says, Titus, I told you. I told you that was going to happen. I don't know about about you, but (laughs) Paul is seeing something in the church that is often hard for us to see. That kind of confidence. I don't mean just our church. I mean the church. Third, the affection they had to God's shepherds and his or of God's shepherds. Sorry, verse 15. And his affection for you is even greater. You say our affection shouldn't be based on our uh, obedience and repentance. Okay, well, have dealing with the text. The longing and the affection, not the commitment to love, but the enjoyment of. An expressed happiness that happens when those relationships break and there's repentance, it, it brings affection, he says. His affections for you is even greater. Titus is coming out. It's like, man, I love these guys even more. I love these guys. He remembers the obedience of you all. How you received him with fear and trembling. Like he comes in the room and they're all like, ah, here it comes. And the response of him was not to beat them down, but to encourage them and bring joy to them and his affection. He leaves there going, man, I love this church so much. Verse 16, I rejoice because I have, I have, I have complete confidence in you. All right, here we go. Final application. 
in hard and discouraging times. These three things, the comfort to God's servants, proof of Paul's boasting, affection of God's shepherds. And not just of the the leadership, but of God's people. Comfort and boasting and affection in the church. These three things which can encourage the church and its servants. Life in general and life in local churches can be so difficult and challenging that we can be tempted to say, what in the world is the point? I can stay at home. I can listen to sermon audio. I can find my favorite preacher. But dealing with people's just too stinking hard. But when we act in gracious confrontation and reception of correction per our church covenant, and I don't mean this just as a church, I'm talking about husbands, wives, I'm talking about parents, children, I'm talking about us as one another. When this happens, as well as an abandoned, wholehearted, Christ-like forgiveness for the wrong that has been done, like we've seen in Paul in, in ways that are nothing short of astounding to me, which, by the way, is only a reflection of Christ. He rejoices over us with rejoicing when we repent. There's more joy in heaven at one sinner who repents, and that includes a safe sinner who repents, and over all those who do not. When there is both the confrontation and the forgiveness, there's much to be gained in our families, in our church. Sin and failure against one another and the Lord is a given. It is has happened, and it will happen. It is going to happen, but the power of grace enables us to respond with godly sorrow, and when we see it, we should celebrate. We should be comforted. We should boast. and Our affection should increase for one another. There's a movement in the church at large which is not this kind of response to failure and sin, but it is satanic. And it works in the opposite direction. There are more than enough critics in the church of Jesus Christ and those formerly in her ranks. There are more than enough disenchanted people because of the presence of sin. But thankfully, Paul wasn't one of them. If anybody had reason to walk away from the church, it was Paul. And if anyone has more reasons, it's Jesus. But Paul didn't quit, and Jesus doesn't quit on his church. Paul gives us in this passage a template of how we should respond to our failures, as well as how we should respond to the failures of others. If we seek by the fullness of God's grace to apply these examples to our own personal lives, which is, by the way, the example of Christ by the power of the Spirit, and we apply this to the church, we can expect a very different outcome. We must look for and glory in what God is doing among us, not just look for all the problems and in one another. Instead of becoming the critic of Christ's church and the church at large. The presence of sin doesn't prove we aren't Christians. But the presence of godly sorrow in our response to sin is evidence that we are Christians. Sin doesn't prove not a Christian. But what does prove a Christian is godly sorrow and repentance over time. So from this, we see that Jesus is still removing our spots. He is still ironing out our wrinkles. He is still at work. 
May we have ears to hear and eyes to see that he is among us and in us, even in the midst of so much muck and grime in our world. Let's pray, please. So, Father, thank you for the amazing, amazing love of Christ for the church. And Paul told us to imitate him as we imitate, as he imitated Christ. And so we pray for that. We pray for something in us to work that Jesus never had, which was a godly sorrow for his own personal sin because he knew no sin and became our savior. And so we pray, please help us to respond, help us to be very aware of and humble because of our recognition, we are all sinful. Help us to be confident in our identity of who we are in Jesus. And Lord, help us to love what is in our lives that is truly good and true and beautiful and be thankful to you and thankful for others when they correct us in the way and help us to grow in grace. Lord, thank you for such a thorough passage teaching us about the things that we don't have to speculate or psychologize, but that your word and the entrance of your word brings light. We pray in Jesus' name.